It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who's in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat, blood, who errs, who comes short again and again, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who, at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold, timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. These are the rules of the arena. Welcome, everyone, to Rules of the Arena, episode 24. Joining me, as always, is my co-host, Ben, and super, produ- super producer, Casey. What's up? And in studio tonight, we have Hop Barrel Master Brewer and celebrity sandwich maker, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. However, no sandwich material. I forgot about that. <laughs> uh, this episode is made possible by Blind Ninja Studios, where you can hear the, find this show, and also shows such as Department of Defense, Homebrew Bound, Bound, Soundwave, and Legends of Lothos. This episode is also brought to you by Duck Hill Workshop, a small-scale sawmill and builders of fine furniture. You can find them on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Duck Hill Workshop. Don't forget to subscribe to the YouTube channel where you can watch episodes of Workshop Wednesday and In the Shop with Ben and Glenn. More importantly, this week we are joined by a second time John from Stonehill Farms over in Stillwater, Minnesota. John, thanks for Hi coming down. Yeah, and we have Eric tonight uh, from St. Croix Valley Hops and Deer Lake Gardens in St. Croix Falls, Wisconsin. John, Eric, thanks for coming down tonight, taking time out of your evening. How are you doing today? Not too bad. And if this will work, Eric, if you could uh, just introduce yourself to everybody listening at home that haven't that don't know about you. So, I am a specialty crop grower. And I've been doing that for about actually growing specialty crops for the last 25 years um, for another company for a few years and for the last 20 plus years for myself. Growing mainly cut flowers, a little bit of vegetable stuff. And since 2012, I think we started growing some hops. So, and Did you always plan on going into agriculture um, and running your own business for that? Maybe not running my own business, but yeah, I always planned on uh uh, agricultural type job, I guess. And we're ta- we're kind of talking. You started with Deer Lake Gardens. Uh, did you purchase that from a previous company or a previous nope. owner? Or did we, you start we started that, that ourselves. I'm. We started a small. Well, the company growing cut flowers. We needed to name it something, and we just happened to be on the south side of Deer Lake. So. And when did you first open that up? We. I think we bought the farm in 1996. All right. Starting, um, if you wanted to go into agriculture, what got you more into specialty crops as opposed to traditional corn, soybeans? Actually, well, growing up, I grew up down by Red Wing, um, and my mother's farm was a dairy farm, but they also had an apple orchard. Mm -hmm. So some specializing in different crops wasn't anything that was foreign to me, I guess. Um, My wife, when she was in college, went on a trip quarter abroad, and she actually studied the flower market in Holland, basically the auction, and got an interest there. She was already doing what she was doing, and we bought our first farm and said we could do this. I actually sold that farm, went to work for a greenhouse. I was a production rose grower for four 
four years and then bought the farm we're on now and just started growing especially mainly cut flowers but a few other things all right cool and you're selling cut flowers here in wisconsin mainly in the 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 cut flower market there's three wholesalers left in minneapolis which would be regional um so yeah everything goes into minneapolis and you're still in when we're going back and forth on email you're also selling california my wife is a cut flower broker she sells mainly California product and a little bit of, I mean, what I, if you look at dollar amounts, what she's selling of our stuff off the farm is very small. So she, she's working with growers out in California now? Yep. Okay. She, she, she worked for a wholesaler in the cities for a while, learned what she had to do, and she basically sits on the phone and buys and sells all day, talking to small growers, then lining up with her customers what they need and a lot of distribution. Sure. I was going to say in the email, it said, you know, selling flowers in Wisconsin, yep. California. I'm looking at the map like, how do you? There's a couple states. In <laughs> there's only right now, there's probably two people in the country that actually do exactly what she does. One's in California and, wow. and her. And sure. she works for a group of people that are basically working in, in the Watsonville Valley of California, which is where Driscoll's basically is located. Yeah. A lot of fruit production, but yeah, so it's a different kind of a job. <laughs> Start, it started by a forester in Montana, <clears throat> actually. When did you start, or when did you decide that you wanted to start getting into the hot market then? Um, I think it was 2012, probably about 2011, I had those wholesalers asking for hot binds for wedding work. And I said, sure, I can grow that. That's no problem. And 2012, we put in hop binds. I started looking at it, and it's all kind of started rolling downhill from there. Mm-hmm. How many plants did you start with then? Uh, 200 foot rows. I was probably plant. I I bet I only planted about 40 plants. So we're a little lighter than I plant now, and yeah. Two hundred foot rows. And how much have you, or since then, how far have you scaled up? I've got four and a half acres of hops. Nice little small weekend so, project. From, uh, <laughs> in an acre, so two, from two hundred feet in an acre, I I figure my acreage uh, on the row spacing uh, thirty six hundred feet equals an acre roughly. And how? So, what kind of what types of varieties did you start with? And are you still growing those now? Or those same two. Two beds are still in the garden, um, and I'm growing. I probably got at least thirty named varieties on the farm right now. So I do propagation work. So we, one of the first things when I started propagating, I believe in about 2014, I planted a trial garden, which is a hundred foot row of. There's 25 rows, so 25 different cultivars, just to try try to start learning agronomically what works and what doesn't work and you know how how much trial and error was involved with that uh, well we were with along with john we were some of the earlier growers so a lot of trial and error and a lot of error um hopefully we're starting to figure some things <laughs> out so yeah, how much of that has played i know you both uh, work with or part of the uh, minnesota hop growers association I mean, how much information and, and research have you been able to bring to the table through that? Well, we've we've been able to. Uh, it helps to find out the information. 
um, working with the universities and finding the source of, of good information for us. And then basically what the Hop Grower Association does, it's an, it's an avenue for other growers to come and we help you know, do a lot of educational work with other growers, basically. We disseminate a lot of information so that growers coming up don't have to do quite as much trial and error and you know through working through the u of m and we talked about when john when you're down here last you know their breeding program and we've talked off air about you know when did you start what made you want to get start your own breeding program on your farm um we're in the midwest we're way behind kind of the the proverbial ball of what has to be done and so the university is looking at it through the eyes of what has to happen and happen long term to be sustainable as an industry. I look at it that way and also what do we have to do short term to try to catch up. Um, and there's a lot of the proprietary varieties of hops that we can't grow maybe in the short term. There's a few things that we can do to get caught up a little bit quicker. So. For example, I mean, I mean, everybody knows Mosaic, everybody knows Citra. Uh, you know, what is what are you, the what is the Midwest? You know, growers like you that are doing a breeding program. What are you trying to well to put us on the map? The first thing to do it would be to find out if we can <clears throat> capture some of those varieties and actually grow them. We can't grow a variety right now that truly encompasses Mosaic or truly encompasses Citra. Well, because those are proprietary. They're proprietary. They're protected by the big breeders and companies out west. So if we can bring even a variety that may not be quite as agronomically appealing to me and John as growers, but appealing to Brian, we will put up with a lot of stuff right now kind of on the agronomic side to, to bring that to a brewer. Where the university's program, they're... <laughs> They're looking at it as long-term. They're trying to establish a base genetically right now and then bring a product forward. And it, it's time, and we've got, we don't have time on our side. We want to try to speed some of that along. I mean, are you looking, you know, long-term and short-term? You, you, we saw the rise of the Northeast hazy, juicy kind of forward IPAs. I mean, looking at hop varieties, I mean... How do you as a grower plan for what do brewers want today and what do they want next week? <laughs> <laughs> so and as a breeder or a breeding program, you would have to be, you should be looking, it takes probably eight years to get a variety from start to finish down the road. So you're trying to project 10 years out what's going to happen. Oh, wow. And this industry is <laughs> 10 <laughs> years from now. Yeah. <laughs> Who the hell knows? And so th 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 there's a few loggers. things <laughs> that, that I look at the industry, the industry globally as a whole that have happened. Um, hop production globally is up. If you look at Europe, it, yes, hop production is even up in Europe. But they're not increasing production on their noble European varieties. It's all been increased in the same varieties actually me and John can grow. So as brewers keep getting better and better and want to start exploring that traditional market, a lot of the traditional hops for that market are 
your noble varieties. And there's just worldwide, actually some of those, the Czech Republic, if they have a few more bad years of growing size, size may go away because they're not irrigating. Their climate has changed just enough that it's getting harder and harder for those farmers to grow that. So long term, I'm looking more towards what can we capture that will sustain my business and it may be in a noble something with those characteristics. Yeah, I'm so. looking at the list right now on your website, and these are all, like every single one of them is well, except maybe except for Wild Wisconsin, <laughs> but they're all just classic. Well, Wild Wisconsin actually is classic. That is really? a wild selection that that probably has a lot of cluster in its background. Okay, so it's it's it it's hop chemistry is cluster basically okay. very similar to cluster got it um but the wild varieties there's a lot of interest in wild varieties just because they're doing well in the midwest they're, they're from the midwest so if we can cross certain varieties with a wild hop we can maybe really short circuit our our breeding program and and get caught up a lot faster than trying to breed for diseases and whatever. We could take plant material that's surviving here, breed into it, and hopefully come out with a variety much quicker. Okay, and you get, it looks like you guys sell rhizomes then too. Little, we do plant propagation, so we're selling plant starts. Okay, got it. The industries went away from rhizomes just because well, because you can plant them upside down. Yeah, you, well, <laughs> but, and they won't grow. They, they actually may like that once in a while. But. Right. I, I made the mistake when I did my trial when I first got into it of planting with rhizomes, and I think I brought about three diseases into my hop yard. You oh, don't. Geez. Nobody can sell you a rhizome and tell you that that is a clean plant. You and get no a, diseases. You get a bet, better, no. cleaner start, a quicker takeoff, without bringing stuff in that may slow you down or shorten the, the long-term life of that hop plant. So what is the rhizome then, just like a root structure? It's root stock, yeah. Okay. Where the, we buy clean planting material for actually from the University of Washington out west. There's one USDA site that cleans up hop material for the whole country. So Eric will buy one plant and spend hundreds of dollars <laughs> for one plant. And then, but then he'll spend all winter. It, yeah. That's my job in the winter is sitting out in the greenhouses, taking that one plant, making two plants, and then in a the month I'll make four plants. And wow, <laughs> so where did you? I mean, what kind of background or what did you do to learn how to do that? I mean, was there already someone else doing it that you were able to study? Well, no, it just a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I went to an agricultural school, well, here in town. Um, but my whole career has been in kind of this specialty area. So a lot of specialized training through either extension or specialized seminars, just basically going to school for my, you know, once or twice every year for something. And, and you know, you know uh, we've talked about off air. I mean, you developed a hop, if I'm saying this right, picking machine. Yep. Right term so part when we started, there were basically two avenues a grower could go. Well, we'll, we'll say three. 
there's kind of a the the larger farm for the Midwest, about an 80 acre model, where you buy German brand new German picking machine, and it's a kind of almost like Big Egg. It's a capitalization of money. You you pay to play. Um, the other source of picking equipment would be used equipment coming out of Europe. And your capitalization on that is from fifty to hundred thousand dollars, and so to actually make that model work, you're looking at probably a fifteen acre hop yard with all the other equipment that would take to run that machinery. And I wanted to be more at that five acre area where we're we're just about there right now, and that was making machinery ourselves. There were a couple models in the market. I started building those. Actually, John has one that was modeled after that. As I was doing that, I was building as I went. And the first year, uh, we picked, and I'm going, that model's not going to work. <laughs> so the whole next year, I spent researching how picking machinery works. We actually found one design we're modeling after. It's a Belgian machine. And there's one farmer out west that is picking 450 acres with their largest machine that they built. The comp that company's out of business now. Actually, there's in the U.S. there's two outfits that make I think picking machinery, and in Europe there's probably only one outfit left making picking equipment. So, um, so we modeled it after a Belgium, and it's the Alley's picking machine, um, and they. Back in the 60s when the other piece of European equipment is a wolf picking equipment, the Belgians say that wolf copied everything, but wolf did survive, so. <laughs> well. But that whole area, I mean, the whole area in Europe, it'd be almost going across the same, you know, from Wisconsin, going across Wisconsin through the midsection of Minnesota. That's how big that area in Europe is, so, you know, the actual hop area, so. It's almost state-to-state -state rivalries, but there it's country-to-country -country rivalries with all their equipment. So. so once Eric got this machine figured out, you know, most people would want to keep it secret. You know, I got, <laughs> I got my leg up. No, he uh, worked with the Hop Brewer Association. We got a little money. We hired a student to draw it up and put CAD plans together, and it's on our website now. For anybody that's a member of the Hop Brewer Association, you can have the plans to Eric's machine for free. Yeah. So basically, well, it's free to the hop growers, but to be a member of this Minnesota Hop Growers Association, which I'm a, I live in Wisconsin. I'm a member. I'm actually a board member. But for fifty bucks, or is it what's our membership? Forty five. You get access to something like that machine, but you also get access to everything you need to know about how to grow the plant. So, and do you guys, do you focus here you know, on growing the hops plants? Do you focus on here in the midwest on what you can do or do you have information so somebody goes well i want to grow a west coast northwest coast well, style they won't be talking to somebody in the midwest um there's some smaller and say nebraska there's some smaller areas where a smaller grower they are 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 starting up but they'd probably be almost each state has an association similar to the Minnesota Hop Grower Association. If there is any interest in growing hops, um, so they'd be going to those local associations. 
and actually at our last here a couple of weeks ago we had the lady that runs the nebraska one at our 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 annual meeting we had somebody from the dakotas we've had people from michigan we've had people from vermont so a lot of the smaller the states where the production is smaller we all work together where there's similarities and share information you know there's kind of that you know the the uh, anti big beer kind of campaign going on if you will you know a lot of people don't like anbev i mean do you see that with in the hop side of things where you know the the typical beer nerd doesn't necessarily pay attention to where the hops are coming from yeah. they just see the beer in the bottle or glass in front of them i won't say we don't like them i mean they're they're huge they they are at economies of scale much larger than us so they they they're the price they can charge and make profit is lower than us um but what we're trying to do right now to differentiate ourselves from that market is just to show what the difference is between uh, from the Pacific Northwest and here. And in fact, we just did a study, Eric and I were both participated in that last year, um, where we did analyze the oil content of, of hops from several Minnesota farms, Eric's farm, and then also from Pacific Northwest and just because of the way we dry them and handle them, it showed that we have certain oils in our hops that are not present in the hops that a brewer would buy from the Pacific Northwest. Hmm. So that's some. That's a little bit of what we're yep. trying to do as an association to show, you know, what we have to offer. A and, and that's in the drying area of hops. The way hops are dried, we're using a, an ambient air approach basically, and I was just. Like Minnesota puts on our, the Minnesota Hop Growers puts on our once a year, actually we do it a couple times, we have field days also, but Wisconsin does a, a the same type of a set, setup that I was at, and Dan Carey from Nuglaris was just there and he did a presentation, and part of his presentation was on um, hop drying and hop quality, and when he started years ago, there, there was a thought that the only way to add value to hops in the Midwest was to come up with our own varieties. And that's another where, place where this hop breeding started. <coughs> but since then, the Brewers Association has just actually funded a, a, a study and we've built a better most trap basically. And the way we dry hops can add value because we're, we're not degradating or oxygenating. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> causing breakdown of the hops through oxygenation so and also the some of the oils have lower boiling points so uh, so we than, should be than, and that study hasn't been done yet but yeah. we should be actually ending up with more of the real volatiles in, in our product so the, the science hasn't been there to back that up can yet. you give us a little short uh thing on what volatiles are that's an important piece it's yeah basically with pops as you know as a brewer you've got your alpha acids which is basically it's a commodity it's you, you buying pounds of alpha acid yeah and then you've got your aromatics and and your flavors and aromas and that's where that's where we feel like we can differentiate ourselves is is on that um, so, 
And ba basically, the study that's been done has been done on oxidation right now. If you're a beer geek on hop storage index, our hop storage index, the degradation we're doing in our drying process is almost nothing. Okay. And so that's what's got some big brewers actually excited about being able to use a product that we should be getting more through on what you know what that cone actually you know and then and then another thing is a small scale grower we we've got a leg up over some of the large scale growers is um when you pick that hop if you want to you're shooting for alpha acids i mean everybody thinks okay you got high alpha acid levels and you got a great hop for that variety well, maybe not necessarily. If you want alpha acid, yeah, that's fine. So you pick early in the in the you've got this harvesting window for a specific variety. So you pick early in that harvesting window for the alpha acids. If you want the aroma, it's 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 uh, oils and everything come on later. So if you pick later in that in that picking window, that's where you're going to get the aromas and 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 those those more volatile components. So that's where. Out, out west they got the huge farms they're they're picking huge um, amounts of one variety and then when those go to market the people with the really large contracts they can kind of pick and choose what they get and they they're they're maybe going for those later later picking dates as right. smaller growers uh, like for Mike uh, at pitchfork I can target my picking to where I can give him either alpha acids or aromas. He just tells me what he wants, and then I can pick on the dates that will give him the maximum value for that, whatever he wants. I've heard row to row and picking date are a lot. I think what, I, I think what you're getting at is that the picking date <clears throat> and which row the hops are from are more, than, more important than kind of how they're dried or handled in a sense, but well, dried and handling maybe, but both uh, row to row. Um, I think picking date will be more so than more so than row to row. Okay, um, it's, the bigger the operation, the <laughs> the more you'll get differences in row to row. Um, we're growing the on the same soil type, same my my main pick my main yard is two and a half acres it's from one side to the other it's almost identical um and actually out west if you've been to yakima that whole valley is pretty much identical right um and that's one advantage they do have it's also maybe a disadvantage because there if you talk about hop terroir which we're just learning about then actually the terroir it, and the things that can make that hop difference is probably way down the list. But out west, from field to field or farm to farm, there there's not that much difference. Got it. And the differences would come from something farm practice more than that than actual field differences, which w you'd think is where terroir would be coming from. If, when people talk about terroir, it's something of the earth or right. that area. It just it it just strikes me as very awesome the the uh the idea of the, the amount of factors I'll, I'll just put it this way there's a dizzying amount of factors and combinations of things that can go wrong or right with 
growing hops, which then getting them into beer and all that sort of a situation. Because, you know, what we work with, we'll get, you know, 2017 hops and then, okay, now we're on to the 2018 hops. And it's like, holy shit, this beer, this West Coast IPA we make, this batch is way better. And then you, what you run into is your consumer is like, well, like the consistency is a little shaky on the beer. And it's like, well, when did you drink the beer? Did you drink it fresh? Did you drink it two months down the line? Did you drink the batch that had the 20 fucking 18 hops in it? Which, you know, yeah, it's gonna, there's gonna be differences from, you know, and, and you, you fight and claw to get this product to, you know, remain the same. And that's why, you know, when you, we, we try to go with the same, the same company, the same people every time with our ingredient just to, to rein that in a little bit more. So it's got to be a struggle for you guys as well. And that was going to be my question. I mean, I, is it easier for you on a small scale, both of you, uh, compared to those larger scales to keep that consistency? Well, for I'll just say from my standpoint, I, I do a lot of business with Pitchfork, and Mike is way okay with batches tasting different based upon you know the the variations in the I I like here. that. Yeah. I mm-hmm. like that a lot. Spice of life for me, but <clears throat> there's a segment of drinkers that are like, "Hey, if it doesn't taste the same every time." And your bigger companies that are out selecting, they won't select the best hop. They're They'll they're select. they're selecting a hop that they know they can replicate year to year. Sure. If they yeah, add yeah. selection. Mm-hmm. So they're they're trying to find a hop that they know, okay, I can hit this the same quality or maybe the same aroma year to year to, to year. them it's just ibus in a, in a sense the bigger ones yep. you know like With, ca- canned bittering units and i've been <laughs> listening to other podcasts and they're talking about uh, they've touched on base about mosaic in particular the inconsistency and you never know what you're going to get it's all because over the place. it could be the juicy flavor that you want but other times you know they yep. described it as garlic or onion, onion and garlic yep. Yep. yeah and i've never had a beer like that so that's just kind of well that summit hops too kind of there there's certain varieties that throw a lot of onion and garlic Sirachi ace is yep not, <laughs> I, that's more like dill but I, I i find that to be pleasant to Le, a belgian beer man lemony to dill I, yep. the sriracha ace uh, such a weird hop when you hit it right with sriracha ace that you can make really good beer oh, with yeah. it but it can probably go bad on your oh yeah pretty easily too depends on where it comes from I mean, do either of you worry about those hop varieties or do you or do you actively avoid them you know those more of those aromatic hops well i grow sriracha ace yeah um and actually sriracha ace is one of the oiliest hops that it, it's i can't it's hard to get it to pelletize it so oily um it's just got lupulin bleeding out of it when you're picking it's it's a total and a little teardrop cone. It's a totally different. It's a Japanese hop, actually cross dwarf. Ver, two, well, it's not. It, a, is it not? I or? don't think it's a dwarfed at all. I okay. wouldn't say it's dwarfed. Um, there's actually very few dwarfed hops, and we can't grow those. Okay. So there, why the, is first pro- gold? It, another proprietary. Oh, what? And there's actually a, uh, a uh, program in the U.S. or an association of a dwarf hop association huh and the reason that exists is for pickability if they can come up with a dwarf hop they'll be able to come up with picking equipment that can go to the field the hop crop that we grow right now you can really not pick in the field there are 12 i think yakima chief machines which looks kind of like a combine that goes to the field but all it does is strip the the binds off in the field 
it goes back to a picking shed basically to run through their secondary pickers and break up clusters and mm-hmm. sidearms and then be sorted in, in a building. So, All right. Well, and then as far as pelletization goes, I mean, tell me about that. What? Well, that, <laughs> right now, the actually, Minnesota is kind of doing things a little bit different for the most part for the small growers. Um, we've done away with hammer milling hops. So traditionally, a hop is ran through a big hammer mill, basically broken up into particle sizes really fine, and then pressed through a die. We're going straight to the die, and there again, it's an area that uh, we need the association to start looking at, at funding maybe some research. Are we doing less damage using this method because we're not opening that hop up and all those oils up to oxidation. We're capturing, we're basically doing the whole whole operation right at the mill. So the we break up the cone as it's being pushed through the die. And we're making really good pellets, a good, I'm using the mod, um, BSG's model for hop densities in the same way they're measuring hop density to make sure our pellet densities are right. Well, right, to make sure that they're all consistent. Consistent, and we're not, the industry as a whole basically takes a big scoop, they weigh it out, and okay, this weight means this much, the pellet density is here. The BSG actually, <coughs> and it's the, their, their main, the guy running their processing plants has, has came up with a way to measure pellet density, basically using a three-foot-long tube you take, hop pellets and fill a three foot long tube so you're only measuring the del- the weight and density of the pellet no fines that would come along in the bag so when that hop pellet actually hits your hits your wart it should sink to the bottom and disperse right so and and there's a uh, pretty shallow range where that'll happen okay or if you're too tight it's gonna hit the pot sink to the bottom and not right. not disperse if it's too loose it's probably too dry too it'll just kind of hit the pot and just float right out on you and then it probably takes you guys you got to do something agitated to try to get that yeah that pellet in into suspension so right on our level we for bittering the where you would put the bulk of the hops in on that end we use like the canned extract and then that gives us i mean that'll free up another barrel and a half yep two barrels so the other thing we're doing and locally with all the hemp stuff going on and the c cdb guys and they're they're running critical to co2 yep so there's a guy i'm working with um superior extractions right over in white bear lake and he has chinook and centennial that he's basically making um, cryo hops or whatever right. you want to, you know. So, and basically, the, the probably the main use for that would be bittering. And then, as these guys learn how to pull different compounds out, that's when it'll really get interesting on the aroma side. Yeah. If you could start playing with, you know, I know this compound, and you know, well, we know if it, like you pull linalool and geraniol out, right. combine those or cer- certain yeast. You come up with mosaic, basically. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> interesting. Yeah, they there's some. What is it? Lit, I don't remember. Casey, you remember? Is it linalool is the one that when you throw it into a bio hop that 
Oh, that does the biotransformation. Yeah, it does the craziness. bio. Yep. Linalol yep. and yeah. uh, with geranium. With geranium, yep. yeah. So there's a couple of varieties yep. that people are like, oh, like Simcoe makes a good bio, Mosaic yep. makes a good bio. Um, but that what bio hopping is, uh, you're 24 hours into the fermentation and you whip hops at it. I've also been told that what what you do at a brewery is you pitch the yeast in first and then push the beer in onto it. You don't. It's not the opposite, or well, rather, that's my technique. This might be an ask ten get ten answers, whatever. But <laughs> long story short, I'm also told that if you throw hops into the yeast brink before uh, fermentation, that that's another way to keep the permanent haze. Yep. But I'm I'm too. And then there's different strains of yeast, yeah, and beer yeast. But for doing some of this biotransformative stuff, I I'm told that if you some of the wine yeast do a better job yeah some of that for that you, too if you'd like to know more about biotransformation please check out our homebrew bound episode <laughs> yeah. about biotransformation yes <laughs> nice plug <laughs> yeah, the episode number on there too while we're uh actually i believe it's just called biotransformation it's, it was during our hop series uh that yeah. took place in december so if you roll back through there we talked about biotransformation quite a bit during that i don't remember that you fell asleep. Yeah. <laughs> good, good I, I listened to four years of Homebrew Bound about two and a half months, but that's another story. Uh, well, you're talking about you know the biotransformational, yeah. you know, pelletizing hops. I mean, in theory, maybe this is a stupid question. Could you take hop A and hop B and pelletize them together to get? There's blends. Um, yeah, Idaho Falconer's Seven, Flight. Falconer's Flight, yep. Seven Seas. No. Um, I'll, I'll just uh, the guys out west when they're when they're pelletizing hops, the pellet run is generally a five thousand pound batch of hops that they're running, and it's they use a ribbon blender, and so if they're blending hops, they've got five thousand. They're making a five thousand pound blend. <laughs> there is nobody in the Midwest blending hops. <laughs> Yet, why? Yeah, it, <laughs> why because is that? I nobody has the equipment. It, it's a ribbon blender. Um, some of the equipment that's out there that does have a little mix, mixing chamber. It's an inline mixing chamber. It would probably, when I look at it, at the most, it's holding five to ten pounds of hops, and you're you're pell, you're running a, a bale that's probably a hundred and twenty to thirty pounds, and you're just blending it to get a little bit of consistency in the product that's going there. So we're not blending at all, but our whole hop drying as we bale, as we break that bale and work things, we're thinking all the time, how do we maintain consistency and make sure that this product is blended going into that pellet? If for to buy, uh, what do you call it, a ribbon? It's a ribbon blender. It's ribbon a, blender? It looks like a big cement mixer almost is the easiest way to. How much of a financial commitment would something like that be? <laughs> and could you turn it around and actually make it worthwhile? There's not enough hops in in Minnesota and Wisconsin being grown to make that pay for itself. <laughs> <laughs> if that answers the question. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and nowadays, you know, we, you know. But there may be other industries that I haven't looked into. That's there's other things that are being blended. I'm sure, you know. Mm-hmm. Powdered milk. I, I, I well, yeah. No well, yeah. No, I, I was looking on your website too earlier, and you have like mint and echinacea and like a bunch of other. Yep. Like dill, yep. you were dill, I grow dill for um, 45th parallel for gamely old aquavi. Um, oh, <laughs> so, <Aquavie. laughs> um, and uh, we have the capacity to grow a bunch of different stuff. Um, 
I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> there's always, you know, there's always product that can be going. A lot of the trouble with a farmer trying to grow, say, mint or without having the extraction, you know, infrastructure, it, it, I can grow tons of stuff. But then I've got to package it, hold it until you guys at yeah. Hop and Barrel would want to use it, and right. it just doesn't it doesn't pay. Mm-hmm. The easier way is for a brewer to tell me, "Boy, I'd like to brew this almost like doing a fresh hop beer. I'd like to brew with mint sometime. When could you have that for me?" And you time the beer to a crop and and have fun with it that way. But how many? How many brewers or how many customers does it take for you to go, hey, I want this product before you start to say, okay. Well, well I'll grow, like I'm growing dill for one product, but we grow about an acre of dill for for that aqua beach. So. <laughs> that's a lot, man. That's a lot. So, and that, <laughs> I'll, I'll try to post that at some point, but when we fill up the, I, we we actually pack the bags, the, 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 I don't know, distillation bags. They're just a big, big sack, basically, full of dill. And one of their, their, it's not a secondary fermenter, it's just a big tank. But we, we can put, I think, about 600 pounds of dill, fresh dill, packed into bags into a tank. And then they fill the rest up. All the de- dead space is filled up with vodka, basically, or a clean spirit. <laughs> Interesting. And then... They they let that sit for about a week and they pull the spirit off, referment or redistill it to clean it up so it's clear again. And otherwise, it'd come out look green looking, like absinthe <laughs> or you know. But they, they, if you ever see the post like from Forty Fifth when they're running that, the the still is just churning green. It's kind of cool pictures, you know. Hmm. But nice, interesting. And, you know, you said you started '96 and now being 2019. How much has online marketing affected your business, and how, you know, have you been able to kind of keep up with it? I haven't. We have. We're way behind. If, <laughs> if Brian was looking at my my website, it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> hey, at least you. Have hey, one. it was. It was it, and it was free. It's whatever the phone company actually. Tuesday, I'm going to a class to build a new website, whatever. But <laughs> yeah, I, got, I got the information. But, I, yeah, I got yeah. the information yeah. I needed from it. But <laughs> there, there's certain companies that even you, you need the base so that somebody and somebody can get a hold of you. Mm-hmm. And we, at least we have that. There's some of these new companies, startup companies, the hop extractors are people. You go on their website and they're it's a dead end. Uh, you've, they've got their name on the internet, but that's it. So, mm. yeah, it's an, uh, we, we think it's really important, and as we move forward, it's going to become more important um, as a marketing tool. We're not trying. I'm not trying to market to the mass or the home brewer. Um, I'll sell to home brewers, but I'm not trying to sell to a home brewer. So I'm not, and I don't want to do internet sales per se. So. Mm-hmm. Well, in we we talked off air. You started working with Hot Broker out of the Madison, Wisconsin area. Yeah. So, I mean, our, how did they get a hold of you? Actually, I found them. Our first acre, basically, or we we wanted to look at growing commercial hops. And at the time, I hadn't even found the Minnesota Hop Grower Association. I found an extension agent in Southern Wisconsin that answered my call, and then the broker in Madison. Oh answered my call and I got quite a bit of information from him 
and the Wisconsin Hop Exchange was actually running at the time, and they didn't answer my call. So same thing if you have websites or whatever out there, but it, you're not returning anybody's call, mm-hmm. you move on. And so and we, we signed a contract, We and actually it should have been up last year, but that company went out of business actually two years ago. I quit trying to send them any hops about three years ago or four years ago and just in our defense eric minnesota hop growers association didn't exist yeah, yeah. back then so. <laughs> yeah, we, we couldn't answer your call but the, actually I, I was about a year behind then i i got kind of, i thought i had an answer so and i was growing and i was getting all kinds of information but so i think you guys had one annual meeting i missed before right. that i'm going i just got to start actually getting out there and fi- because uh, I was getting spoon-fed a lot of information I'm going some of this is not quite right so yeah. we, we went got, out we, we got connected in 2014 yeah. yeah yeah so I think 2013 did you have your that was the first that your, was one of the first year of the yep. Minnesota Hop Growers Association and I started in 2012 so yeah it wasn't there all of a sudden things pop up and and as an association, I mean, do you guys reach out for the growers, part of your group, to either breweries or a, a broker? No, no, we're not a marketing organization at all that, that way. No, that was very intentional, and, and that's because myself, there was when I was getting started, there was nothing in Minnesota. It was a, it was a desert uh, for hops, um, and uh, things were happening in Wisconsin, so I would go over here, but I could kind of see... It was like things all formed around three different marketing organizations and nobody talked to each other. <laughs> so we wanted to get something going where marketing was basically forbidden from our organization. It's just all about uh, education, research, and uh, outreach. And We will talk about marketing, maybe marketing concepts, yep. but we're not a marketing organization. We bring, we'd bring brewers in once in a while to talk at our annual meetings to talk about what they're seeing in the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, we haven't really brought marketing, marketing people in to talk, but we probably will at some point, but we're not going to market your hops. As growers, I mean, where do you see the industry going in the next 10 years, for example? Yeah, how about that 10-year projection? Yeah. 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 <laughs> what beers are we going to be drinking yeah. in 10 years? <laughs> but but what, we're gro- what I'm growing, I think it may not even be what, because I've got to grow what I can actually grow and sell. Mm-hmm. And I was asking John, uh, if you count, say, Nuglaris as craft beer, what is the number one hop probably sold in Wisconsin? For is, uh, probably size, really. They, That's the hop in, in spotted cow. Okay. <laughs> and they buy all that in Wisconsin. No, that's all bought in the Czech Republic. Okay, got it. But uh, he was just on. I was watching Wisconsin Foodie the other day, and he was on, and he's got a trial. Got he's got a couple acres of size put in right now. They're try. He's looking at it seriously. How he's worried about. His supply of size for spotted cow, right, mm-hmm. going away. Like you were if saying, if that goes away, what Interesting. happens? Interesting. Oh God! Can you imagine a world without spotted cow? <laughs> Can you uh, imagine the branding on spotted cow now made with Wisconsin hops? Yes. <laughs> so, well, I'll, I should talk <laughs> yeah. about, but I mean, their whole. If you look at their label, what's their label? 
Wisconsin. Wisconsin, what's the fingerprint? Yeah, the, yeah. So Wisconsin. Yeah. What does that yeah. fingerprint mean? You know, there's a lot of marketing probably behind that fingerprint. Oh, yeah. Where, where's Carlos? Carlos, <laughs> <laughs> we need to know what this means. <laughs> I don't want. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> Is there a concern with the European hop varieties going away? Uh, say size a little bit. They've had two or three really hard years for farmers to grow that crop. They don't have irrigation. I mean, typically, irrigation was never put in. They've been hotter and drier. Um, actually, our, our climate here in Wisconsin, Minnesota, mimics the climate of Europe. But if you look at the mean, but we have a lot more spikes. We have hotter and, and colder. So as we go north, which kind of where me and John are, and even farther north maybe into Wisconsin, Minnesota, our climate, I, I look at if, if I'd buy some land up on Lake Superior and you get that lake effect, could mm-hmm. I grow a good size crop? Mm-hmm. Maybe. Hmm. I mean, there's a lot of things, just things to learn. And Is that of, with the size you're looking for a cooler, wetter temperature? Not or wetter. Not wet, wetter. Wet's, I mean, our humi- <clears throat> humidity here is our struggle. Okay. We're lo- I'm looking for moderate temperatures. Mm-hmm. And around 80 degrees at, at, for a max, and you know, if, if you're not getting fluctuations, that's where, for some reason, those European aromas tend to come through. Okay. When you start spiking, they don't like that. Mm-hmm. Could you, in theory, then breed a uh, Wisconsin sauce, for example? That's that a, that's my tolerant? theory. <laughs> is <laughs> how can we bring that? Start looking for those characteristics. Um, especially size has never been really bred it's it's a noble variety that over the years they've selected and always selected to keep though that profile there and just selected plants that show better agronomic capabilities so they'll get a strain that is performing a little better they'll go with that strain as long as it's carried all the the aroma characteristics are size so over the years it's just been improved that way hmm. so there's been a little bit of work uh i think yakima gold is actually supposed to have a lot of size characteristics that's but gold has been bred for yakima um so if we start taking wisconsin wild hops which i have quite a few actually now i've got a i've been stockpiling them um and the University of Minnesota has even more. They have a lot. They're looking for genetic markers. Um, but if we could start crossing those Wisconsin or Minnesota wild hops with some of these varieties, and if we're able to pull through noble European characteristics on the aroma side, but keep our agronomic characteristics on the on the plant side, then we'll have something. Interesting. That's. Without giving away any trade secrets. Well, there's, yeah. I don't have a lot of... Can you just talk about the process of, of crossing? So, while well, hops are growing for brewing, are, it's a cloned female. Okay. So each variety it should all genetically be identical. If you're growing Cascade, it's the same plant no matter where it's growing. They do kind of sit situate themselves in an area... And the certain hops like Chinook um, shows a lot of different characteristics here than out west. 
hmm. and actually it's it's gets away from some of the cattiness that may be off-putting to some people maybe going more to some good like pineapple type tones um so what was your question <laughs> the, the process of crossing so so you need a male and a female so part of my struggle it was getting enough males to actually have have something to breed with and and hop breeding is just like cattle breeding basically mm -hmm. um we look at male plants and and judge their their worthiness by what their daughters do how they perform okay. so we're just at the beginning of that process i've got male plants i really don't know how good they're going to be okay um, so it's it's a cross pollination. It's not a grafting. You're not. It's not a grafting. It's okay. a pollination. Not okay. so. Yeah. So you make that cross, and the trouble is, if you have more than one male in the yard that's mm -hmm. pollinating at the same time, that would be an open pollination. Hmm. It's not a controlled pollination, so you don't really know. You, I've got to judge that male. So my males are growing someplace else. If I want to cross into Sriracha Ace, I cut the male down from the other yard when it's shedding pollen, bring it home, wrap that, the two together in a big sheet, and just let them flap in the wind for <laughs> a couple days, and you pull pull the sheet down and see if they had babies or not. <laughs> Interesting. So, wow. <laughs> oh, where'd my question go? I had it gone. Yeah, gone. Uh, it ran upstairs along with my R's on the other episode. <laughs> Gordon, you got to find those, bud. I'm working on it. <laughs> Put signs out. Do you have a question, John? I, I think it was all the baby talk threw Gordon off. Yeah. <laughs> you got too sciencey for you, him. You, you I don't know well he about got, my he got too little, little riled up. Now, having your farm, I, you know, John's hosted us over at from Pitchwork Brewing before, and he has a wicked. Uh, stone well, he has pizza. a really good good pizza oven. Yes, he does. I mean, I've can, been hosted there before. Can you compete with that at your place? I mean, do you do any public events or? Well, so at least once a year, um, I do do we do an open house, which is turning into more going away from some of the agronomic stuff. We always cover the agronomic stuff, run anybody through the whole process of growing hops, but then it's. We're doing it right before harvest, so we're starting to focus more on, on a varietal type trial. And as we start doing more and more breeding type stuff, and and I'll have the the University of Minnesota right now has seven varieties that are pre-release that they're looking at that we'll have in the trial garden. So there, there's a lot of material there for for growers, for brewers to come through, start rubbing and smelling and doing that, and that's. Usually, I think it's the third Sunday of the month, so of August, starting probably at two o'clock. <laughs> um, you gave me the and date. yeah, I can't compete. I don't with John with a pizza oven, but I do. <laughs> here in school, I put myself through school basically roasting hogs. Um, so I still have a hog roaster. I don't do a hog roast, but I <laughs> last year we did um, uh, spare ribs, so I can I'm. I'm pretty good with spare ribs, I must say. <laughs> I feel like there needs to be a combined force of the spare ribs and the pizza. Like, Well, that could happen at some point, but it'll probably no. be at John's. <laughs> I'll bring some ribs and we'll put them on a pizza. <laughs> there we go. 
But then, I mean, we give tours all the time. I'm there <coughs> at home. I try to stay away from doing agritainment, or but mm-hmm. my uh, our job. I'm selling hot plants, so any real interested person that wants to buy plants, uh, I'll spend probably too much time with them. But we, I share as much information as we can. We're only as growers right now. My feeling feeling is that we're as good as our worst grower out there. So we want to make everybody as good as we can. So yeah. like that, the tide raises many boats. Mm-hmm. How, how far out do you go? I mean, you're located in uh, St. Gray Falls, Wisconsin. I mean, as far as, as far as, you know, if you're to who you'll sell your hops to, I mean, we're talking, well, John hop starts, I've so, shipped hop starts to New York, to wherever people find me all, but I, I like to, I, uh, I like to work in the speedy area <laughs> of, um, and basically brewers, uh, right now, fairly kind of locally but uh my far Derek Almendegger at Unmapped um I like working with um and he's probably about as far as I get um, he's in Minnetonka yeah that's in Minnetonka so Mm -hmm. the far far what south South. west corner of the Mm -hmm. cities um then in Wisconsin I uh, sawmill brewing in Merrill Wisconsin my wife just happens to be from Merrill so uh, we sell a bit of hops like to that far across the state a um, couple other places we've shipped to once in a while over there um, it seems like you get rural Wisconsin probably rural Minnesota too that's where they get away from wanting all the proprietary hops and they're really interested in Hollertau and the, a lot of Goldings I, I sell into Wisconsin, kind of to the rural markets. Um, even North uh, 320 Brewing up in Pine City, I think their porter won the Growler's Blind Taste Test, and that had our our Goldings in it. So nice. I'm all all out of my questions. I don't know Brian, Ben, or is it Andy? The late addition to the show. If you have any questions, real quick. <laughs> Uh, probably too many to be honest. <laughs> um, no, having having not worked or listened to the rest of the episode, uh, when you're making crosses, so I, I currently have some ales too. Um, I actually work with Wayne Hunky. Yep. And uh, he's been growing some from seed from seed he's collected and weeding out the males and last year I convinced him to let me look through a few of the ones he <laughs> that were starting to express and I dug them out and when you're looking at the, the large crosses um, his varieties that he's had of females are very high mercine varieties um, in the local area and in uh, brewing what we've had is very nice cucumber notes for dry hopping and really nice melon notes for in and a boil. Um, I would think... And, and those uh, are nice. But. Yeah, and that that's uh, kind of a... One of the main character or main characteristics that, that tend to come through with a wild hop. And so as you cross those wilds with something else, what's going to happen? I've got one wild female right now that has... It's a light variety, that but it has no characteristic. Mm-hmm. And actually, I, I'm real. I I cross something into that, <laughs> and I'm really excited to see if I can get what I crossed it from a male, in you know, into that variety. Nice. Hmm. So, yeah. and if I, we can start, 
Well, that, like, that's my learning point. What what is cap- What are we capable of? Yeah. How fast are things going to happen? Can we get the? Do you have good descriptors for for the university's first cross, John? I don't. You know the um, the 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 one I grew for the University yep. of Minnesota was uh, they had, took it to RAR malting that their sensory group and did some uh, testing on it and it basically came out bland, nothing exciting here. But then Derek Almendinger at, at Unmap brewed a beer with that last year. It was awesome. It had some really unique citrus almost to the mosaic side of things. Nice. Yeah. It smoothed out really nice as a, probably a pale ale hop. Yeah. Um, it wasn't as aggressive as some things. I had it early on and it was a little bit up and down. Just you'd get a, take a drink and you'd get a good blast. And the next one you're going, where did that go? Um, but then we had it almost three weeks later, I think. Yeah. And it, it was a really unique pale ale that would be marketable. I mean, it, it's different than anything out there. So. so in crosses that you're making, are you looking at uh, specific females that you would like to have an inherited trait for a male? And how much... Are you trying to put on creating a male that's worthy of actually crossing? So I talked a little bit. So you're. I came in the middle of the male conversation. So your males, it's going to take you, if you have a male, maybe you'll know it's a dud right away. (laughs) And hopefully, if it is, you'll find out right away. But it's going to take years to actually evaluate that male. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I don't know. It's so hard to find a good man. And I don't know how much influence that female will have. Yeah. So I don't know, you know, which. That's the fun part about yeah. it all is <laughs> it's you have to grow yep. ten thousand seeds to find one good one. That's what they say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, anyways, no. Um, so, are there any specific like goals you have for your? Um, breeding program are you long, looking for long term i'm like going to start west coast or no long term <laughs> if i am looking for noble noble characteristics nice. or i'd really i mean actually i'd be really happy having a good golding type for our area that starts getting used in all those you know all these porters and everything <laughs> that'd make me that's my style of beer that'd make me the happiest but <laughs> that's a work in progress too but I, I I see maybe more opportunity. I mean, short term, if I had mosaic that I could grow, there'd be a lot of opportunity there. I don't know if we can catch that. And I is that trend going? I the the craft trend is here, but I don't know what the beer trend that craft what that's going to look like. Well, and I, I know- do think things go back to the norm, and that's where I think those noble varieties that haven't been exploited in Europe and maybe on the decrease a little bit if we can gain that here there's value for growers to be able to grow that if we and especially agronomically if we can get the pounds per acre up to a place at least a little bit closer to what we're getting out of american lineage hops then the grower will have a something that he could actually add a lot of value to and take value to the market well in in looking at that are you um, or how much does it come into effect when you look at the fact that the West Coast just has a longer season? And how much do we, because we can't get the mosaics and the citrus and everything just because of 
trademarks and whatnot. Yep. Um, but how much, how much of the poundage, you know, because those are over like a ton per acre, you know, sometimes reaching like twenty five hundred pounds per acre. And there's yeah, there are three yeah. or something. Yeah, and saying sometimes reports. it's crazy. And New Zealand uh, hop varieties too for the same reason. But they're a longer season, so what are we but, looking at? And oh. the university that, stuff, though, that, it's yeah, interesting that, what Charlie's finding, and John's got... I've got one. I'm growing a university experimental, and it's up in that 24, 2,500 pounds per acre range. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Is it later season finishing, though? Yes. Okay. Are, is there any like interest in looking at some of those dwarf varieties, too? I know that that's something that opportunistically they're patented though. They're again they're patented. Uh, well, for the summits and your and everything. First gold. Um, yeah. So I, I and I don't know if anybody's found dwarfing characteristics in any wild hops locally or, or regionally. Um, I think the dwarfing characteristic is, is something that through breeding programs they've just kind of stumbled across. Yeah. Um, which is that, nice. <laughs> yep. So any, anyone listening like me who, well, the first time I saw a hot plant was when I went out to John's farm. What are what is a dwarf characteristic? It, it would. They're looking Smaller. for something that'll grow. Dwarf. <laughs> I figured. I was looking for a nicer answer than that. But but a dwarf hop is probably twelve. Trying people. to create content here, yeah. Brian. Opposite of Groot. <laughs> yeah. Opposite. Of, uh, and that was the last time that Brian was on the rules of the arena. <laughs> so I, I know I know at the West Coast, uh, being the hop center, they've done a lot of research with this and. Um, Almost anything that I've read from Washington, they've entirely just thrown the idea of of dwarfed hops out the window. Well, I've, um, I've been by the some of the studies, so or at least low trellis grown hops. Because yeah. there, most there's of the time, one group, it, it's the um, Dwarf Hop Society of America. Yep, that's who has a Zaka and Summit under there. And first gold, they and first gold. First gold is a golding type developed in England and this group has the rights to it in the US. Yeah, it's that's the parent that all yep. of this lineage has come from. Yep. So, well, and so I guess what a lot of those studies have concluded is that where the bulk of your hops hop production is is over 14 feet. Uh are you guys looking at the short sidearms like hops that are going to be putting on sidearms at six feet. What, what I started, and when I just, when I'm evaluating my yard and what I'm doing, I actually evaluate my node length, okay? Mm-hmm. So how, how can I affect the plant to keep my node lengths as they grow short? Because every node then puts sidearms on, and your sidearms is where your production. So I try to stack, keep my practices so that I'm stacking node lengths, trying to get as many node lengths going up that string as possible. Um, and you can, certain varieties like say Chinook, you can late train, you can start getting a lot of variance in what you're doing. Awesome. <laughs> With the, like we are kind of talking a little bit earlier about you know the popularity of certain hop strains coming out of the Northwest. I mean, do European growers are they feeling the pressure? I mean, do they are they looking at what we are growing over here and go, how can we replicate something, something, anything similar to that here? I don't know if they're. 
I, I haven't looked at the, the main grow. Uh, there's a couple of different growing programs in Europe, and like the Czech Republic, they've mm-hmm. basically they have started making crosses with size now, but traditionally it's been a selection program. Um, I think the IPA craze <laughs> caught everybody, except for maybe a few of those proprietary breeders out west by surprise. Yeah, well, and. In the European market, I know that America has caught on to some of the response they've had, specifically like Huel Melon and yep. um, your uh, Mandarina Bavaria. Yep. Like that one is huge. It's great and really nice. It's, it's a good sub for uh, cheaper, or I'm sorry, it's a good sub for way more expensive stuff. Oh, yeah. Oh, Mand- yeah. Mandarina. Yeah. Well, and then, but you also so. have on the other side, on the noble side, I mean, Fair State has their Keller Kosbeck, and Kosbeck's a Czech, yeah. a Czech bred hops, but it's just a superior noble variety, and your spalts are select. And so, I know the way that the brewer uh, brewing industry is going is there's more and more back to light beer craze that still wants flavor, though. Yep. And I, well, hopefully we keep flavor. I was, hopefully, I was talking about that. I was talking about that earlier. We were we were releasing a light beer um, soon. Labels are done. Beers the, in the tank. HB Light is that where? Yep. Called? And you're, but yeah, that's. I'm curious to try it out because, well, like on uh, Department of Defense, we tried a uh, American lager, well, German esque lager. And, uh, the, <laughs> well, but to be honest, your guys' is tiki right lager, lager. It's just the tiki lager I really like, but I'm a huge Allspice fan, so <laughs> little bias. You, but. you know, I woke up I woke up one morning after being at Psycho Susie's, the tiki bar in Minneapolis, <laughs> with a crumpled up napkin that said tiki lager. And I went for it. Uh, no, I did. There, I had I had the the beginning of the recipe was on there, and I was like, this malt, this malt. And then allspice, <laughs> but <laughs> when I I was like, we're gonna use Jamaican pimento berry, which is just allspice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. rum drinks, man. <laughs> uh, sweet drinks make you drunk. <laughs> Good old tiki lager. Uh, um, so so I mean, you were asking though about like Europeans. Uh, I've got some regulars in my bar that travel frequently, and most places they say aren't, but the one place that they say they love the American incorporation into the brewing style is Poland. So they say that out of Poland, they have just some fantastic microbreweries that use American hops, but are doing these IPAs just as good. I just got back from Europe, and I can can confirm that the IPAs are crap in Europe. You can't get a <laughs> good American hoppy get... beer in England to save your fucking life, or in, or in Germany, <laughs> or in oh my god, is this Belgium? 5%? Or... Are you gonna be okay? <laughs> I I was actually in Argentina though, and it's this tongue-in-cheek thing that everyone has to have one IPA on, and usually it's a really nice clean IPA, and they're really tasty, but they absolutely hate making IPAs That's and they so do weird. they do fantastic classic European style beers but there's though. a lot of classically trained brewers right. in those that areas too. that yeah. they're fighting fighting their their <laughs> it's training yeah. it's 30% of 30% of the market period that's huge like 30% overall IPA in the American market 
insane. Yeah, I don't. It's not. No, it's not going down. It's going up. So mm-hmm. it's slowed down. But how it's much still is going that? Up. Is it's still going. And yeah. <laughs> what? I said, how much of that is wrong uh, and hazy? <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> You know, two, two hundred, hundred, couple hundred years of trying to make the most clear beer possible, and then, mm. and then they're like, "Oh, oh hazy, let's, let's make it hazy." <laughs> what? Who? Who is I the can brewery? do that. God, it says on the Damn can. It. It, it says on the can, "Please drink from can. Don't pour into a glass," because it was, it's so hazy that they were first embarrassed, and then the the trend caught on and changed you. Don't or drink out of can unless you like hazy IP, yeah, IPAs, and then please pour into glass. Yeah, and then the strongman pour thing happened where there's no head on the beer. Oh, and I'm God. like, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. And then people started drinking it out of a bowl. <laughs> like a dog. <laughs> <laughs> nope. <laughs> Again, if you'd like to hear more of our opinions about beer, listen to Homebrew Bound. <laughs> I almost forgot what show we were on. Flex. I know, right? <laughs> no, that the head the head is one of my favorite things on a beer and I love when I It's part of the presentation. I it I we have like monthly training with our employees and I'm always like, You guys are not pouring enough head. It needs to be Well how it you depends on how fingers. fat your fingers yeah, are. Yeah, you got big a fingers finger. there. <laughs> Two Brian Two fingers, one fingers. ogre finger. One or, yeah, one ogre finger. One farmer finger. <laughs> I've got a half one. Yeah, yeah, yeah probably. Yeah. I'm there. I just absolutely love when I make a beer where I can pour it through the center and have it sit up an inch and a half off the top. Yeah. That's my favorite. I don't care nice how down head. the glass it is. Oh, I love that too. If I could sit it on top, I'll pour it, you know, like right a bite, up to the top like a as long as there's beer pour. Oh, like God, just, yeah. Like a big. Yeah. Oh, ice cream cone. So speaking of which, I mean, Cohumulone in your breeding program, is this a factor you guys are actively looking at? Or are you just trying to go for the flavor <laughs> side of things? It's what, I mean, we're not quite there yet. Okay. That's just my one thing when I look yeah. at when I look at a hops, even if I'm using uh, and it that's for bittery. Gonna be, I mean, we're at the evaluation point, mm-hmm. and that... We haven't evaluated yet. Yeah. So, and I don't know even the university where they're at with a set. There's seven varieties that are are ready to be evaluated, basically go for field evaluations. But I don't know how much chemistry, you know, brewing chemistry work has been done on that past rubbing and saying, "Ooh, this has some potential." I I honestly just don't believe anyone's nose is good enough to pick yeah. up the nuances of hops. I think it's just and, and, and for, I think it's for, just a bomb yep. of sniffed. And, and that's where I'm at is selection. Yeah. How am I going to go through 250 varieties mm-hmm. and call that down? Now, some of the for agronomic things, I mm-hmm. I'm yeah. my first selection, I've actually got 3,000 varieties in the greenhouse right now will be I'm going to add Spike emergence. We'll have downy mildew, which is the disease we fight, and I'll be taking spikes and throwing them into a into a little hand sprayer and going and spraying all my plants. And the ones that show really bad downy mildew, I can say that ain't going to work, <laughs> and I can trim it down to two, you know, from three thousand to two hundred and fifty plants. Of that two hundred and fifty, half of them, about, are males. I can kind of get rid. I'll anything that looks unique and promising as a male i may keep around for further evaluation maybe uh depending on what the cross came from 
and then it's how do we evaluate the rest of them and by and by varieties you literally mean different crosses different crosses yeah. yep so i've got i did um eight different crosses last year nice so and we got a little bit into donnie mildew when john you were here back in november um episode 13 14 if anybody wants to go back and listen to that uh is it possible to breed a variety that is resistant to diseases or that or downy mildew in particular i don't know if it will be true resistance but resistance kind of has a scale too so it'll be resistant hopefully we'll get resistance and not susceptibility to you know <laughs> is so there, there's kind of a floating scale um actually josh havel from the university presented at the wisconsin um, grower meeting and I mean it goes the the there's about five percent at the bottom that look pretty dang resistant and then beyond that everything gets more and more susceptible um, but in that line of susceptibility if I found a mosaic right now or something what like it I'd put up with quite a bit of problems with downy mildew and grow that I'm growing cashmere and a couple other USDA varieties right now that are very susceptible to our diseases because they just haven't been bred for out west because that disease isn't something they have to worry about. Ooh, how is the cashmere tasting? I get a lot of <laughs> rhubarb. <laughs> Early on, I, I get rhubarb. I don't know. That's probably just my a lot of cellulose type. Yeah, but rhubarby. I've got a couple. I'm actually I. I was sold out of that at harvest. Just it, almost all of it went into either wet hopped or fresh hopped beers. We did a couple yeah. of fresh ones where yep. we pelleted and went right to the you know fr from the oast to the pelleter to the brew tank that same the day they were about you know, so two days after picking they were in the brew tank. So wow. So when you're talking about evaluating the different hops, and we've talked about a lot about this on Homebrew Bound, is everybody's palate's different, everybody knows is different. Is there a standard way of evaluating, or is it just up to you to try to figure out, I think this smells good and this might do well, or? With the university program right now, RAR is helping in the sensory thing, um, and we and I, just, I think there's a lot of flaws in, in the way a, they're doing that. Though. The way and, and we they were they started and I went I'm I'm right now going down this avenue with ru trying to Randall to see if I can get anything go running might a light like, beer through might a Randall. Expect, explain what a Randall is. So a Randall, <laughs> Randall's a filter. We're filtering hops or beer through hops basically. It's it's a hop back that goes yep. between your keg of beer you intended to yeah. infuse further yep. and the actual glass of beer so it's a very very the last late minute edition of hops you can possibly so, yeah. so you, you may think... be able to tease a little aroma out there but it's so little and by the way trademark of dogfish head brewing yep. so <laughs> there, there's probably that. a different term we could use or whatever it's a hop back yep it's, it's a hop it's back. a hop it's, it's a hop back. hop back blickman calls it a hop rocket yeah. uh dogfish head calls it a randall I think because it looked like a robot and they named it Randall yeah. or something. Something like that. It, because Sam Calione is Sam Calione. Uh, so then <laughs> my last incarnation of that is a little pellet Randall. I can pe I'm Randling pellets. And even there, letting a beer sit on that pellet for a while, you, you may get a little bit. But we need to develop something yeah. better for evaluation. And 
I get more of, off of the actual dry cone rub is where I get the most. I, I, the, oh, USDA 2009-073 was really interested. We just opened a bag up at our uh, at our hop conference a couple weeks ago, and it was just amazing. I'm going, this is so much better than when I put it in the bag that I just my memory remembers that. And I'm going, this, this has some really lemony light lemony tones to minty and that <laughs> some of the problem though with just randling hops to see if how they're going to work out uh patty iran from raw malting she's chemist um in their she well it's a biotransformation yeah <laughs> she does all their work with their hops and stuff she's gave presentation that I, I mean I had flashbacks to organic chemistry in college it was freaking me out I mean are we talking like <laughs> protoplasmic fusion yeah, or are we talking yeah, yeah. like gold guns but, <laughs> but it was really a fascinating talk and you know she talked about the transformations that these hops undergo in the kettle and mm-hmm. so you know right there boom uh, you just can't look at at a, at a hop and tell what that's going to my, r- express on the back end. My biggest issue with hops and the way that we brew with it is I'm the biggest anti-dry hop fan. And I think that everything, even if it is 30 seconds of still boiling, I want every hop to be added in there. And it comes or, from... Or at least on the hot side. At least on the hot Whirlpool's, Whirlpool's yeah. great too, but when I, I get too much... Uh, from from a late dry hopping. I mean, I like it when it's, you know, active croissant, but when you do it too late, there's too much resin that just well, gets I, that's extracted. That's what I think this thing was something In the Fernsons? Oh, I'm glad you brought it's that in that. from Sioux Falls. I got, I have a, some good friends in Sioux Falls. Wait, and, what were, yeah, what were you thinking about and, that? Well, Fern, Fernsons is one that... Um, I had mixed feeling about their different beers, just like I do any place. Maybe the way the oils... Sit they're, on the back of your tongue yeah. when they're, you know. I might have to have another taste of that to be honest. I don't know if we have any left. Oh, uh, we should have. It was, it was it one that, like, <laughs> in my immediate, uh, in my immediate <laughs> tasting of their IPAs, their tap room in the downtown Sioux Falls, it was, it was a little coarse, and it just had a, a finish that was slightly unpleasant. That's exactly no, that's what right. we said. But in, in this whole conversation, I just want to interject. They said, I did So not. one thing that, that we're going to be working on as an association, hopefully mm-hmm. on the Minnesota side, maybe with the Brewers Association, hopefully a little bit, is terminology, okay, getting everybody on the first Common page. language, that's Common so lang- hard. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Keep moving away from this mic. <laughs> Common language, but then... I've been working, and John's worked with um, Unmapped Brewing, Derek Almendegger, mm-hmm. and if he's got a Minnesota hop series, that he'll highlight certain hops. But in the in the tap room, if a customer's willing, he'll sit set down just a hop value or a beer evaluation mm-hmm. form and have them fill that out. And so as as we start evaluating new hops, I think of Katie over at. Um, Bob Town here. She yeah. does a lot of smashes stuff with. Uh, she works for us too. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but but she does some smash stuff. If, if with that smash brewing a beer, it, it's probably the, the better way to actually evaluate Ab- a hop. Absolutely agree. Yeah. And, and, and agree. if we could start developing along with hops, yeah. and I'm going to have to do this anyway, just an evaluation that goes along with those hops when 
when we were trialing either USDA, the USDA hops or the University of Minnesota hops, along with that to the brewer, to the tap room, if we give them the tools, that then that evaluation should come back to the source to disseminate out what that hop is. So right. that, that then when that is a variety and I go to the brewer and say, I have this unique hop that is, it, it's really pineapple-y. What what I mean tiki lager. You start talking about Denali for sure. But all the other the chemistry, what that brewer he wants to know what what that hop's gonna actually So it's this, I then that equates to him, this is what I'm gonna do with it. Some it's such a cool no, it's fine. It's such a cool part about brewing is that like you it when when the hop got picked, when the hop got put, at what part of the process you know, but did it get put we in? do the same kind of evaluation. Mm-hmm. We should be doing it more, sure. Because I've got when I, I keep records upon records of how I handled when I picked this variety, what the color of the lupulin was, what the what the moisture. How do I repli- if I do something right for you? How do I replicate that next year? If that's what you're looking for, I've well, got to know. Yeah, you're not wrong. <laughs> and, and and you can forget a lot in a year. Yeah, it's very true. That's why people like like these like the darkness or whatever. They're like, oh, last year's was you know uh, different because blah blah blah. And I'm like, I don't remember what the sandwich I ate last week for lunch tasted mm-hmm. like. Like, <laughs> yeah. like I have a terrible yeah. memory for that. But if you want it different, then we start to. I've got to teach myself how do I tease this out or that out. Well, and of you, whatever. It's the, the, you know, and the common language thing is is another big thing in in beer too, where you know people are like, "Your beer is inconsistent," and I'm like, "No, you drank it when it was three months old, or you like it when it's two weeks in, or you and know, etc." That's oh, something yeah. I never really thought. About I like I love brewing beer, yeah. and then just mm-hmm. how that be- just drink that same beer for yeah. a couple weeks. I do weeks that at the brewery, and, a lot. and it just changes. And mm-hmm. That's part of why dry hopping is such an offensive thing to me because. What what the public doesn't understand as much chemically because chemistry is confusing and the public is dumb and the public <laughs> it's it's hard to tan but the, the heat the heat fixing that happens with a lot of them prevents a good amount of the oxidation and that's why I'm such a proponent of having something at least a little bit in the boil is because it helps stabilize it. Yeah, man, you can you can take a, a really hoppy IPA with tons of dry hopping and tons of oils in it. Mm-hmm. You can set it in the sun, and it's going to skunk so fast, you won't even know. <laughs> yeah, and, <laughs> like, uh, like, well, I I didn't like beer, and then when I got into it, it was all pretty much dark beer, malt-forward beer, and so I didn't really think, well, IPA, they, why can't they sit on the shelf until, Casey, you touch base on hop, uh, or uh, bottle and canning dates on homebrew bound, and it, that's when I started to think about it, and I I started to look at these dates, and I would compare. You know, I bought you know a beer from Pitchfork, and I'd sit on an IPA crawler for six months, and I'd try it versus the notes I gave myself when it was fresh off the tap. I go, oh shit, they're son of a bitch, they're right, and it's now effect. And I feel startling. like a douchebag <laughs> because I go to a I go to a liquor store or the local grocery store up where I live, and I look at the canning date. Bottle date on and go. Fuck it, six months old. Fuck this. That's why we don't put and candy I dates on our so cans. I got so stupid excited because I, I found was looking at that today and got mad. Well, I, <laughs> really? I found, oh, really? That we don't put candy? Yeah, no, we don't. We we will eventually, but. It's... Well, I found uh, Maine Brewing Company's lunch, and I've heard a 
you know, nothing but good things about this, but like it seems like the general consensus is do not drink past 30 days because then it starts to fall off of hop and into fresh cut grass. And I go, if and I was at a liquor store here in Hudson, I go, oh, Maine, uh, it's their lunch beer. Awesome. Cool. And I, I was at the bottom of the went to Maine a couple years ago. I was really excited and I was really disappointed. Yeah. But when I got, came home, I was really I'm going our brewers here are doing a really good job. If, <laughs> if Maine's supposed to be good. Mm-hmm. Well, my issue was that it was bottled July of last year, and we're it's, now in uh, yeah, April. It, well, so. this is another reason why, as for our brewery, why we self-distribute, because yeah. getting it, kicking it to a distributor, I mean, how long is it going to sit there? Can I trust the distributor? And you should be able to because <laughs> well, you just franchise your business to them. Yep. You know, can you trust them to pull old product on the shelf? I mean, a weed, I know we can because... I know when the the beer went to that place, I can pull a gap report and say, hey, listen up, they got product that needs freshening. You know, we handle it that way, but the distributor, distributor can you trust that? You know? uh, generally, it's an issue. We have multiple <laughs> yeah. distributors, and most of them do really well for us. Some of them So are, you're at Rush impossible. River, you I'm should at, I'm say at Rush that. River. Yeah. I, I am at Rush River, and uh, part of what I love about who I work with is that if I ever find something, I'll just taste it and be like, nope, and look at the label and yeah. immediately. Then you know. If, if I'm having it, if, well, yeah, absolutely. I, I know. And it's, it's, ex- it's specifically with our session pail because it is so well dry hopped and it's an absolutely wonderful beer. And you talk about the progression of the way that the hops. That's scenic. Right? Are you talking about scenic? scenic? Dude, that beer, beer, that beer is so awesome. good. So <laughs> scenic, I don't scenic like is, it better than Bubble Jack because I've been drinking Bubble Jack since 06. I like double bubble over Bubble Jack. But, double, double bubble is a rare oh, treat, though. God, man. it's so like, good. It's I'm just spoiled with that. And I won't even I won't even drink it at the tap from any more because it, it ruins me for the scenic rest of the night. Scenic kills it, man. I love that beer. But yeah, scenic yeah. is great. And I kind of put the end mark on its bottle life at about three and a half months. Sure. And most of the time, because we don't bottle as much scenic as people might think we will, um, because it is a session pale, um, and the market is pretty well saturated with that. And by the way, Citra Mosaic. Just going to put it out there. It totally is the Citra Mosaic beer that we make. Um, It goes from right off the line it's almost a little bit of a letdown because it hasn't yeah. matured yet. Because you need a few, like a week or two. Yeah. Like I find that with a, a couple of our beers where I'm like, yeah. okay, fine, you know, it's out out of the box, but like two weeks ish, it's just like, whoa, this has really come into its prime. Yeah. So it, yeah, sometimes you get that bright, and like we usually get a little bit of it's it's almost under it's, it's underdeveloped, but it has still a nice pleasant taste yeah. and then it goes really nicely tropical mm-hmm. and then at the end of the cycle it has just this peach note and it's just a really nice kind of mellow and then it goes to caramel and peach and if I taste the caramel and peach I know it's about to go because past that it just it's not skunky it's just stale well, the caramel starts to oxidate yeah it's what happens the caramel malt yeah C60 well, will oxidate it's a uh, it's not a particularly uh, heavy one, but that's part of my issue with any beer that is, you know, approaching, that's past an amber ale and approaching a brown ale, but still calling itself an IPA with mm-hmm. dry hopping. There's one big one on the market that I will not say, but it's a big company. I'll say it. Uh, Don't get me sued. Say it right now. Okay, it. I hate Furious. And it's because of that. <laughs> it's because of that. It's because it's a heavily malted beer and... 
My my millennial it's employees just, tell one. me that Surly is is a suburban dad beer. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, they. No, I'm 37. No, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm old enough to be a suburban dad. Yeah, I, I, you're you're there. <laughs> and and don't get me wrong, they make some great beers, but but their flagship Furious is I'm one sure of those that I just. <laughs> I just can't drink. I I've never been able to because it always tastes that it's stale. A, it's a malt. It's a malt bomb. It's a, it's too much for an IPA. So what we're, I think feel like what we're really coming down to is all this is an agricultural product and it needs to it has a shelf life. Yeah, yeah. totally. It's kind of what we're talking yeah. about. Anyway, back to hops. Yeah. <laughs> Hundred and twenty minute all in the boil and that thing lasts. <laughs> just saying. <laughs> Just say it. Eric, say John, uh, if there's anybody out there listening that they want to start growing hops for themselves, either on a homebrew scale or a commercial scale, I mean, do you guys have any advice for them, either locally or do it. regionally? Yeah, do it. But first thing, join the Hop Grower Association or something. Uh, lots of education. Go talk to some brewers. Find yourself a brewer to start with that's committed to what you're committed to and go from there. I mean... Come out and visit me. Come visit John. I'm sure John gives plenty of tours himself. Um, we'll walk you through what, show you what the whole endeavor is going to entail. Yeah. But give up the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. do, do your homework and don't quit your day job. <laughs> Retire first, like. <laughs> uh, Eric, what's the uh, best way to get out or find you? Um, you can find me at. Um, stcroixvalleyhops.com or just give me a call. Can I, I get my phone number out? Uh, if you want to. 612-702-3595. Careful, there's a lot of creeps listening. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I, I found you on Facebook. Anyway, so. I, f- I found you on Facebook. I, I'm on Instagram. Facebook <laughs> under St. Croix Valley Hops, Instagram <laughs> under St. Croix Valley Hops. So. And uh, John, just uh, for anyone that hasn't listened the last time you're on, uh, where's the what's the best way to get in touch with you if they're interested? Yeah, I'm on Facebook. I don't have my own web page, um, or um, so so yeah. Just Stonehill Farm Hops on on Facebook will will get me, and and you can make sure you have hops in there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's there's like, don't be the wedding there's like, there's, there's like a bunch of Stonehill Farms. In fact, there's a wedding, wedding venue in, in Minnesota now called Stonehill Farms, and so I keep getting calls from people wanting to have a wedding at my farm. And, I think yeah. you could do, I mean, with especially with that pizza. Yeah, right, right back back the pizza, I'd be happy. <laughs> now, now, to people who are interested in growing hops, maybe not agriculturally, there's a huge market at the moment for cut hops for fall weddings. Just saying. Shh. Come on. Come on. No, we, we sell a lot of yeah. hops to, to the wedding. But to wholesale. Would you say mid, mid uh, sidearm, short sidearm? That's well, your Well, there's a lot butter? of different ways to use it, yeah. Or uh, cluster and, size. And cluster size, um, yeah, there's a lot of different ways, and I've got some new ideas okay. that came over the winter. But, <laughs> Total tangent. Yeah. Sorry. But... <laughs> Yeah, backyard what or if you're a backyard hop grower, maybe a better avenue to sell your hops is go talk to your local florist and say, I've got six binds here. Anytime if you have a wedding that would like hops at their wedding in any I'd say anytime even early August, as soon as there's cone on it, through October, if you haven't had disease issues, 
I mean, I sell hops starting in that time frame, and we sell our last hops for wedding work usually late October. We'll hang on to a couple binds and tell our customers, well, they're not going to be perfect, perfect, but... <laughs> they're pretty. Yep. Yeah. From this one cone in the boutonniere to whole binds in the wedding or trellises and... Dinner. Centerpieces, everything, yep. yeah. Table runners and... Well, thanks again, uh, Eric and John, for coming down. Uh, for anyone listening, you can find the show on BlindNinjaStudios.com, iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and CastBox. You can also watch live recordings and join our conversations on Twitch.tv slash Rules of the Arena to keep up to date on new episodes and make sure to like and follow on Facebook and Instagram, both at, at Rules of the Arena Podcast. And last but not least, this show is supported by fans like you. It really helps me out every time you give me a five-star review on on iTunes. And if you don't think I earned a five-star review, please tell me why. You can get get in touch with me directly at roapodcastinfo at gmail.com. You can also message me on Instagram and Facebook. And if you'd like to support the show directly, please go to patreon.com slash rules of the arena. It's this little tip jar I have set up, and all I ask is a buck a show. Thanks again for listening, and we will catch you next time.